0: One way I'll just say, as we get started this morning, um, looking at thirty one through thirty four we're going to handle it just in its own as its own text, kind of as it stands alone. but if we were to look at how does it fit in, which again this isn't the point of our of our time this morning, but if we were to consider it a part of the ongoing conversation regarding humility in the previous passage. Um, you, you recall, if you weren't able to be with this, but uh, last week we dealt with the rich young ruler. And you remember the conclusion to that text with the rich young ruler is he went away grieved. He, 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 he left the scene, and the reason for his going away grieved is because he knew what was the cost of his discipleship, and it just he was disappointed in Jesus' remarks. So he, so he left going back. And you remember the, the beauty of the picture and the empathy and the, and the sadness is really, the, as Jesus reflects, Mark tells us Jesus really loved him. Um, and the compassion he was showing the, the, the young ruler there, the rich young man. Um, and so the rich young man, he leaves in sadness. And then you look at clearly at the text and it mentions Jesus' own emotive response, his emotions as well as he watched him go. He also was sad. If we were to keep with the text then from this picture of the rich young ruler and jump into this text, that he now more narrowly withdraws from the multitude and speaks only to his disciples, he is the contrast. We could we just summarize this section of the text as the contrast of the rich young ruler. If we had time, we'd go to Philippians 2. And, and maybe jot that down to go back over in the evening maybe on Lord's Day or however you consider it, to continue meditating on the preaching of the word of God in your own heart and your own mind. What was said? How does it apply? What should I meditate on? You go to Philippians 2 and see exactly what Paul's saying. He who was rich gave up everything that he might become poor for our sake. That, that's the contrast of the rich young ruler. That's how this is working together. Here goes one who says, I'd rather have the riches." And one who says, I am rich, and I consider it not a thing to be grasped. But taking the form of a servant like you, I gave that I might accomplish. So I'm being made poor that you might be made rich. That's the great contrast here between one who left in sadness and one who gives it all away that you might be made rich. But as we look at this particular text just now, not thematically, but as a standalone, there's a lot of importance here for us to consider in this section of Scripture regarding the unfolding purposes of God. In other words, we see here in just a moment the character of the entire Bible being expressed. What Christ is now telling his twelve. So he, he withdraws from the multitude. As you see there in 31, and taking the 12, I, I think we should assume that "and taking is to withdraw, is the idea. So there are more there, and the rich young man, he fled, and now Jesus moves toward making us rich. And he takes the 12 with him, and he begins to explain the process whereby you will be made rich. And so as he is speaking with the disciples, he's going to explain to them the unfolding promises of God to his people. You see, think of it in these terms for a moment. The disciples at this time, you you already know the end of the passage has been read for you, verse 34. And I don't have a lot to say or share, really, as you just read it as I do in verse 34. They didn't really understand what he was talking about. You see it, I see it. And then you see this comment that is unsure of exactly how it's happening, but the saying and significance is being withheld from them. So, so in, in summary, we see they just, they didn't know what exactly he was describing, but think of it from their perspective. They understood the idea as do you and I. Certainly, post cross and resurrection, we understand it quite clearly. But think of it from their perspective, as knowing the Old Testament text of Scripture, they did understand the idea of sin. They knew that they did understand the idea of sacrifice, the idea of wrath and justice, and the necessary punishment that must be dealt to sin. But as clearly here in the text, as he begins to speak to them about his own life, they had no idea that he, that is, that Jesus, had to specifically come to pay the debt himself and die as their substitute. This is beyond the bounds of their understanding of the Messianic expectations. Yeah, yo, I get it. There's sin, there's justice, there's wrath, there's sacrifice, but I... I... Right, so I'm going to tell you about the Son of Man and what's to about to occur. You, us, together, we're going to Jerusalem. This is what's about to unfold. They didn't say, oh, yes, that makes sense. Though they knew the categories that would require such an action, they didn't know it was... Him who would specifically have to die as substitute. Even today, as Christians, even today, this text and the work of Christ sets him apart from every other founder of any major religion or sect. This text And it's it's flushing itself out in time. You see, the purpose of every other founder of a major religion was to live and be an example. Jesus' strict purpose was to die and be a sacrifice. I'm going to live, I'm going to show you how to live. You mimic me and live the way I did. She's saying, I'm coming to die for you and to be a sacrifice for you. As it relates to the Old Testament text, then, where the disciples are thinking it through now, as he's going to begin to explain to them, the work of Christ, it, 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 again, why didn't they know Not to mention if it was withheld from them, but more naturally, why wouldn't they have gotten it right then? And we have that repeatedly across the Gospels, where they're they're not seeing the significance. They're always acting out in a way that's contrary to what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Why didn't they get it? Didn't they know the Old Testament text? Don't we confess that Christ is contained in the Old Testament? So why are they kind of in the way or awkwardly stopping the progress? Or why aren't they getting it, so to speak? Just consider for a moment, again, they did get the idea of sin, sacrifice, wrath, punishment. Not the idea, however, it would be Jesus who was to fulfill this by sacrifice. As it relates specifically, consider the Old Testament text. As you read through the Bible in a year, or you give yourself to the Old Testament for a portion of time in your reading, you see very clearly the work of Christ contained in the Old Testament text, I trust. I'm sure you do. But you also recognize that it is contained in pictures, signs, types, institutions, and shadows. You don't see Jesus of Nazareth there. But you see a picture or a type of which Jesus of Nazareth fulfills. Same with the disciples at this point in time. They know they, 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 they see those categories, but they're struggling seeing that it's him who fulfills them. So the comment here, how should we handle, notice the passage, is this microphone really loud or no? Okay, I was told to stop talking about the mic all the time, so I've been trying to stop, but I just keep hearing myself this morning and worrying I'm being extra loud. Maybe not. I don't want to digress, so let's keep going. Looking in your passage, then, at the comment that Jesus says in verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by or through the prophets will be accomplished. It's important that we as believers kind of gather from what Jesus is saying in verse 31. That everything that is written by or through the prophets, that is everything in the Old Testament, that is, the statement serves not to pinpoint a particular text. Like we'd go, okay, well, let's find the one about the Son of Man that he is going to fulfill. But rather what Jesus is saying, this is what characterizes the entire Old Testament scripture. This is the nature, this is the characterization of the Old Testament text everything that the prophet spoke related to redemption, related to sacrifice, related to sin, related to justice, related to mercy, related to love, all of that, that which characterizes the entire Old Testament text, must be accomplished. And it was to be fulfilled and accomplished in no one other than himself. Look for just a moment before we finish working through our passage, look over to 1 Peter, if you would, just for a moment, to see exactly how you see this from Peter's perspective. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll just read the text real quick. If you're there in 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 10. To see, again, it's not that there's a couple passages in the Old Testament that relate to Jesus and his work, and those are the ones he's trying to signal toward. What he's saying is, this is what characterizes your Old Testament And again, by the end of it, they're still kind of like, ah. And then we see, well, particularly what was troubling and hard for them is that it was being withheld from them to know the fullness of his speech, but even naturally struggling, as we've seen throughout the gospel. Again, everything that is written in the prophets. Well, how much did the prophets write? Look at verse 10 of chapter 1, if you would, and we'll just read 10 through 12. Peter explained this to you and I, the Church of Christ, concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Look at the work of the prophets in your Old Testament text. What were they doing So with inquiry and, and handling so carefully? What were they doing? They were inquiring what person or, or, or what time The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. You you see the picture of the prophets now. They're writing prophecy, institutions, shadows, and types. And as they write them by the power of the Spirit, wondering and inquiring, who is going to complete this? Who is going to fulfill this? So look at, as Peter concludes, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. By the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You see, What we see here in Jesus' discussion of everything the prophets have written must be accomplished is not a particular set of texts, but characterizes all of Holy Scripture. Peter generalizes it well, all that the prophets were writing. Concerning salvation, they inquired, who is this that could fulfill such a call? And what time will this be fulfilled? And the disciples at that moment with Jesus, as he withdraws with these 12, they're still kind of inquiring as well, who could do the work of the Messiah? Who can fulfill all of the subsequent glories? How is this going to work? And is it particularly you? And how will you particularly fulfill it? And in their minds, substitutionary sacrifice wasn't the number one answer. Notice how we see this being expressed, the fulfillment of prophecy fulfilled in Christ. Again, I'll read verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we, us, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that was written about the Son of Man by or through the prophets will be accomplished. A first piece about the text to gather together. Is that Jerusalem, as you know, working through Luke's gospel, is the epicenter of Jesus' mission. And here he's explaining it as he has again and again. Go back with me real quick to see how significant. In other words, in your mind as a listener by now, are you surprised that he's going to Jerusalem? And are the disciples? No. Jerusalem is the epicenter of Jesus' fulfillment. Go back to chapter 13 just briefly. A couple of verses in 13 will explain it where we've already seen this. And I could list multiple passages, but as you know, I would keep you all day, so I can't. But I picked this one particularly to zero in on the importance of Jerusalem as the epicenter of his fulfillment. Look at verse 31 of chapter 13. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, And then he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered you as children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, those words that are on their lips that day, blessed is he who comes in the name. So you see from that passage there, he's even indicating to the disciples very specifically, where will this all go down? And it is Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the place of fulfillment. Important to know about this as believers, and as we particularly celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning as nourishment to our souls, is to always understand that Jesus knew exactly how his life was going to end. His death in Jerusalem, whether we list Luke 13 or we do multiple passages out of the Gospel of Luke, or we search the Bible, or we look at all the Gospels and the words on his own lips, his death is not incidental to his mission. It's not something that ended up happening to him. It is at the core of his work of redemption. This is important to see and he is well aware of it we are going to Jerusalem and everything that ought to happen in Jerusalem will happen in Jerusalem Notice how he uses this or signals this to our text to us in the text that he is not caught off guard again i read verse 31 for you taking the 12 he said to them see we are going to Jerusalem. And, and, and you can kind of read the text and you can hear them thinking, okay, that sounds fine. And then he adds, what's going to go down in Jerusalem? Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets, that is the characterization of the entire Old Testament, will be accomplished. I want you to focus on that word just for a couple of moments, the term Accomplished. Again, his death is not, as believers, as we come and receive the nourishment from this table, as we renew, as we rest, as we are yet again reoriented, not upon an incident that happened, but upon an accomplishment that was fulfilled. And it had you, if you rest in him right now, it had you in its view. He died for you. Because of the term accomplished standing out so significantly, I am suggesting to you that what we learn by Jesus saying everything must be accomplished, not like everything must kind of maybe happen to us, we'll find out, but it must be accomplished, is a strong signal, a strong giveaway to us as we read that Jesus is going to Jerusalem by divine necessity. Let me give you an example of divine necessity, well, more like human, non-divine necessity, so that you can make sense of divine necessity. And that is, we say things like this all the time. I have to go to the store of necessity. I must or I'm under compulsion. I am forced. I have to go. You understand I have to go to the store. Now again we don't say it with such force like uh, uh, lives depend upon it but you get the idea. We're using language of necessity. I have to go to the store or I need a new shirt. It is of necessity that I go and that I accomplish getting this new shirt. It is of necessity. If we put the language here of Jesus in accomplishment, I'm saying he himself sees. He is under divine necessity. I must go to Jerusalem. It's not like, hey, you know what would be a good next step? Let's stop off at Jerusalem. He's gathering his closest associates and saying to them, we're going to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. Because out of necessity, there is but one necessity for the life of Jesus. You could guess what it is. What is the one thing he must do? His Father's will. I must Go to Jerusalem. And you guys are going with me. Turn over to John 17. We have to, in order to help with our time in this passage, just briefly. Look at John 17, at the beautiful picture of where we see a similar scenario happening just before the events that will unfold in Jerusalem. You even see it at the title probably at the top of John 18 is, at least for me, I, whatever copy of scripture you're using is the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in 18. So you see what's happening. We're, we're kind of in this same kind of timeline. It's prior to the work of the cross. He's explaining now in Luke 18, again, the epicenter of the work that's about to go down. Now jump as you are to John 17 and look at the need for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. Why must he go to Jerusalem? look at verse 31. I want to read the text beginning in verse 31 of 16 and then through into 17 and just read 17, 1 through 5. Look at the divine necessity of Jerusalem. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. Each of you to his own home, and you're going to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you guys, to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Look at how John 17, 1 then begins. When Jesus has spoken these things, or spoken these words, right? What words? I've overcome the world. I've done it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. In your mind, He's telling the disciples in Luke, we're going to Jerusalem. I have to go to Jerusalem. Because, verse 1, John 17, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I've given it to the ones that you've given it to me. This is what we're doing, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. That's eternal life. And look at this phrase at the end of verse 3. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. to go to Jerusalem. The Father sent me to go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth. Notice that word again. Having accomplished the work that you gave me. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There are two important things if we go back to to Luke. No, sorry, I, I still want to point out a couple things in John 17. Sorry, let me turn back to John 17. A couple of truths that stand out to us in John 17. Why Jesus must go to Jerusalem is simply this. God sent the Son to go to Jerusalem. He sent him. He commissioned him. He empowered him. He called him that he might go to Jerusalem. So Jesus tells the twelve, we are going to Jerusalem. Why? The Father sent me to go to Jerusalem. And secondly, why must he go to Jerusalem, Luke 18? Well, according to John 17, he must accomplish the work that the Father has given him to do. Now, jump with me very simply and summarize what we're gathering at this point in the text. And it is simply this. Jesus is going to Jerusalem because the Father sent him to go to Jerusalem and to accomplish the work that the Father gave him to do. But you would ask, perhaps, thinking, so Jesus is accomplishing the work that the Father has given him to do, what is the work? Father, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The hour has come. Hey, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. What is the work that Jesus is accomplishing that the Father sent him to do? Look, it's stated twofold. Verse 1, you see it right there in a phrase. What is the work that Jesus has to accomplish? Verse 1, the very last statement of John 17:1, That the Son might glorify the Father. That is part and parcel of Jesus' work in the earth. What did he come to do? To glorify the Father. How is he doing that? Or a part of that glorifying work is what? Well, look at verse 2. That the Son might give eternal life to all the Father has given him. This is the work that Jesus came to accomplish. To glorify the Father and to give eternal life to his people. Why are we going to Jerusalem? Because going to Jerusalem is why I came. The Father sent me to glorify him in the earth and in so doing, to give eternal life to his people. Think about that. That is why Jesus came. This reminder and this reality is why you're going to come in a moment to the table. Because you're hearing it right now, and you're going to feel it and taste it in a moment. I must go to Jerusalem, because that's why I was sent. That I might glorify the Father and give life to His people. You and I, all who trust and rest in Him, are the fruits of His labors. We're the offspring that rose up with ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to perceive truth because Jesus went to Jerusalem. One author summarizes it this way He says, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to move Adam's offspring from death to life, to change them from being people who hate God to people who now love and worship Him. You see, if there is no Jerusalem, then there is no righteousness. If there is no Jerusalem, then there is no renewal. If there is no Jerusalem then there is no future resurrection. Now, we'll just summarize the end of the text as we move to our time in the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 32 of the accomplishment of Christ in obeying the Father. Because maybe if we were in verse 31, right, we rejoice over the accomplishment and, and maybe a bit unsure of what the prophets exactly said must be accomplished. And so we're still like, yes, accomplishment. Yes, the prophets, fulfillment of scripture. Yes. And then verse 32, look at the portrait of accomplishment. It, it's somewhat an irony, right? What must be accomplished? What have the prophets foretold? Verse 32, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. That, that's kind of going the wrong way toward accomplishment already. He will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. Wait a minute, I, th- I thought we were talking about accomplishment. Do you see you are its fruits? This is accomplishment. I must go to Jerusalem. Father, the hour has come. I've glorified you in the earth, and I'm giving eternal life to all of your people. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about accomplishment. And here's the thrust of the accomplishment. After substitutionarily dying, he will also rise. And on the third day, he will rise. You see... Here is the irony of the portrait of rejection, abuse, and humiliation. As we gather to the supper, what is our Lord's greatest moment of glory? As we come to the supper in a moment, where does Jesus most show forth the glory of God's justice? Where does Jesus reveal most profoundly the glory of God's love? In the hour of the cross. And if you're a believer, someone who hears that, not as something silly, but you hear that as life-giving nourishment, and realize he did it for you not your neighbor alone that is the person just sitting next to you you can immediately like in a vague way he did it he did it even only for you i must go to jerusalem lives of God's people wait upon it. Let us receive it in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for